Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's edition comes live from the BFI South Bank in London, where every month I do my MK3D live show. Coming up, you'll be hearing from Anna Meredith, who composed the brilliant music for Bo Burnham's debut feature, Eighth Grade, which is currently playing in UK cinemas. We'll be meeting the makers of King Cohen, a documentary about cult filmmaker Larry Cohen. And I'll be talking to Benedict Erlingsson, the director of Woman at War, a brilliant Icelandic black comedy. But let's start with Beats, a drama about rave culture set in 1994. The film is directed by Brian Welsh, who we'll meet in a moment. Just a quick warning, there is some strong language. Hello, Colin. It's about Jono. He won't be coming in today. He's, uh, he's dead. Aye, we're all pure gutted, like. I'll pass that on. They want us to get in line, but we won't. <laughs> they want us to be afraid of each other, but we're not. That boy's dragged you down. Just you try and stop us all. <laughs> <laughs> It's getting great reviews. It opens here in two weeks. Please welcome to the stage the director of Beats, Brian Welsh. Uh, so, Brian, I, I saw the film on my own in a, in, a, in a screening room. I kind of, you know, I wanted to be seeing it with a, with a crowd of people. And I am not of an age in which rave culture was a was a thing. Okay. But um, so, but even I understood it. I mean, the story was told well enough that even I went, oh, I'm kind of starting to understand this. What was it that drew you to that story? Was it the political side to it or the music side to it? What was the way in for you? I mean, I think it was all of those things, but. Um Certainly, so it's based on a on a play, um, and what was quite interesting to me coming out from watching the play was that there were people from uh, all different ages. It didn't didn't matter whether they'd grown up in the sixties or the seventies, the eighties or the nineties. They all responded to it, despite the fact it was about uh, rave culture and everything that went along with that. Um, uh, and I think all of us can identify with that moment when our mind is opened by music and disobedience. 
there's a there's a thread running all the way through it, which is the the, um, the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994, which has this strange thing written into the rubric about it, which is in the trailer, which is the the, the specific banning of any festival with music characterised wholly or predominantly by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. <laughs> I mean. The, the craziness of that phrase sort of tells you something about about the times, but it's a it's about trying to suppress something which you can't suppress with that kind of law. It's about a grassroots movement, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's about you know people gathering in in fields to uh, dance around tribal music and uh, in a big collective, and it's something that we've been doing for. Thousands of years, and uh, but 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 in the nineties, the, um, there was so much kind of fear and moral panic around what was happening with you know in places like uh, Castle Morton, where there was like eighty thousand people showed up, and um, and and uh, Middle England was obviously very very afraid, and uh, and so the criminal justice bill was was this piece of legislation that was written both, both to kind of clamp down on on rave parties, but also other forms of dissent. Yeah. Well, I mean, the most remarkable thing from my point of view is the reason I know about the, the, the Criminal Justice Bill and the Criminal Justice Act was that written into the tiny small print of it was an amendment to the Video Recordings Act, which meant that if you were a horror fan, which I was, it suddenly outlawed a whole bunch of extreme cinema titles. So it was, I mean, I've always thought there was a connection between the way in which horror fans were sort of, you know, sidelined by the law and dance music was sidelined, and the way nowadays people who are interested in computer games, that same kind of demonisation. I mean, it was an attack on all kinds of, like, outsiders, you know, um, travelling communities, and uh, the same piece of legislation was then used to, uh, you know, stop busloads of people who were going down to protest against the war in Iraq, and then, you know, this week we're seeing... Uh, that legislation used against the uh, Extinction Rebellion in, in, in London. And also it was, it was the first time that legally um, some, uh, someone exercising their right to remain silent could be inferred as uh, an indication of guilt. Yeah. All very important issues. Obviously the suppression of horror movies is the very top of that list. Um, <laughs> so t- there is a sequence in the, in the film in which you kind of you take us in... Inside someone who is experiencing the rave, and the film is in black and white. But I don't know how much you want. Do you want to say something about that sequence? It's pretty much out. No, I don't really. Is think it? Okay, we, can, we can keep the lid on it. To be so, t- so tell us about it because I thought it was a really powerful sequence, and it reminded me weirdly enough of Ken Russell's Altered States, which is one of my favourite films. Absolutely, we watched that a lot. I mean, okay. that was a big reference for us. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well spotted. Um, I got that right. You see, <laughs> he said I got it right. <laughs> Um, and uh, Nikki, um, the video artist who I worked with closely to produce that, um, it's like a psychedelic sequence in the middle of the film. Um, Altered, Altered States was one of our key references, as was uh, some of like the early Shaman videos, or um, you know, like the Scratch sixteen mil. Um, stuff that would be used like in, vid- in vo- music videos like Voodoo Ray and this kind of all combined a bit of 2001 Space Odyssey in there as well and yeah 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 so you, how old are you? I am 38 I had to think about that so you're not old enough to have gone through this yourself well I kind of caught the the 
the t- I started going out a bit after 94, but a lot of the guys, 94 was the year that the criminal justice bill was passed, um, but a lot of the guys who we used to run about with in Scotland were that generation before. So they were still, you know, put, put, carrying the torch and, and sort of putting on nights and beaches in Balmedy and Aberdeen that were so kind of remote that no one would ever know that they were going on. Um, <laughs> but, they, but, you know, like... The, I've done gigs like that, but... <laughs> <you know. laughs> but the, 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 the boys in the, in the film are really coming to this thing at the end as well. You know, they've kind of missed it. It's this sort of sense that it's the fag end. And I think that, I know when I was growing up, I always felt like I'd just missed that thing. And I think that's something that a lot of people can identify with. But the there's, there's an element in that that reminded me of the end of Withnall and I, that whole thing about, you know, we're coming to the end of the greatest decade and we have singularly failed to paint it black. There is a sense that it, the party's happened. Well, I'm welling up here, Mark. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Wif- Wifnell and I is one of my favourite films. So. Oh, well, there we go. I, I think we're on the same wavelength. Okay. This, is, this is really nice for it's me. It's going all right, isn't it? Yeah. So have you seen it with Big Eyes? As I said, I saw it in a, in a, in a screening room on my own um, because I'm super important. But, I mean, how have you seen it in a, in a, in a screening with, with loads of people? Beats. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've seen it a, f- a few times. We saw it in Rotterdam in a room that was uh, a bit bigger than this one even, and it was uh, it, it worked there, but where it really worked in Glasgow when we screened at the Glasgow Film Festival. I've never experienced anything quite like it. I've, people were just going fucking nuts. So, <laughs> because so many people in the audience... Um, knew what we were talking about. And tell us about your two central characters, because you do get to know and really sort of love them during them. Tell us about them and, and casting them. Uh, so the two characters are Jono and Spanner. They've been best friends for years, but um, uh, life and growing up, they're, they're, they come from quite different backgrounds and their separate circumstances mean that they're, this is kind of going to be their last big night out together. And it's quite tragic because the boys really belong together. And... Um, uh, and they're played by um, a young actor called Lauren McDonald, who plays Spanner, and another actor called Christian Ortega, who's actually sitting over there. Oh, hey. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I, hi. <laughs> You're really good. <laughs> you should ask him to come down, surely. Well, yeah, you should. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 how was it working with Brian? Was he everything you'd expected? Aye. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had this joke with uh, Brian after we like finished the film, and I hadn't seen him for a while, and he'd been editing it away. And he had always talked about how Kubrick was a reference point for him in terms of doing loads and loads of takes. <laughs> and then I, I, met, I met up from, uh, we all went out for dinner and I, I like called him out on it. I was like, um, I, you know, you've, you had enough options, surely, to cut <laughs> something together. And he was like, aye, but I fucking needed them. And I was like, <laughs> fair. <laughs> <laughs> so was it was it fun to make? Was it or was it? Aye, no, it was absolutely better. It was like yeah, one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. There's because when, when we were filming the the rave sequence, we we actually threw like an actual rave in Glasgow, and invited loads of people along for like 
they, they had uh, free tickets, but they had to dress up in like nineties clothing, and there, there was to be no smartphones or anything like that. And so we, I remember on the night we were shooting that, we were like, I don't know if people are gonna turn up. Like maybe I'll know when they'll turn up. And by like seven o'clock fucking people were just turning up and it was like, yes! <laughs> and so we then spent, we then spent about like three and a half hours filming in a run around like an actual party going on. And I remember like grabbing Lauren and being like, this is our job! <laughs> this is our job! <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, so, I mean, congratulations. I mean, it, 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 it really works. I said, if it works for me, because I... I feel very, very distant from. Dance. I mean, I don't dance at all. You know, I mean, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm a, I play bass. I just. I just. I don't dance. But I did understand what it must have felt like as a result of watching, particularly that, that sort of central sequence, and also because I think it's, you know, it's telling a story that's politically important, but it's telling it through the eyes of two characters who've got no interest in that at all. They kind of. They're sort of bamboozled by it. So. Congratulations, it was really good. Um, if you had to sell it to the audience, how would you sort of sum it up in a couple of sentences? What is it? What is the film? Oh, Mark, well, um, <laughs> I think it's... I think you, you, it's, it, at its core, it's a love story, really, between these two boys, and, but it's also, and, and they're both very ch uh, charming and funny young men, and, and I, I love spending... Uh, 90 minutes in their company, um, but also I think it's, it's it, you come away from the film really reflecting on what what that period in time meant, what the Criminal Justice Act meant, and how it's relevant to the way that we live today. So, do you know what you're doing next? Uh, I'm actually working with Kieran, the uh, co-writer on this, and we are uh, writing at the moment. Yeah, Any another, another Scottish uh, Scottish story, contemporary. That's about all I'm going to say. <laughs> and after the best gig ever, what are you doing now? Uh, I'm just about to start rehearsals for a play up in Scotland, so yeah, I've like done done my filming. I'm going back to the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beats opens in Learn two craft. <laughs> Beats opens in two weeks' time, and it is well worth seeing. Uh, what a what a treat! Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's funny because you know I said before, God, it's going to be a packed show. We've got loads of people on stage, more than I thought. Strangely enough. Um, I mentioned uh, Anya's father. Now, if you're a regular here um, at MK3D, you may remember a little while ago, I was at Fright Fest and uh, I went to see this film called King Cohen, which is about the life and films of Larry Cohen. And I really loved it. We did a little thing. We showed a couple of clips from it and I talked about it a little bit. And because uh, I was a big Larry Cohen fan and uh, I th he made so many interesting films. And I thought it was a really, really lovely documentary. Larry Cohen just passed away, which is uh, I mean, a surprise because I, I thought he was kind of indestructible and would go on forever. Let's just have a look at the trailer for King Cohen because this is such a great film and it is such a great tribute to Larry Cohen. Shell cartridges were raining down into the streets of New York. People think that there's a terrorist attack. He goes, get a cameraman and shoot somebody panicking. And then the next day there were articles about it. They went, oh, Larry, you know. What you're really seeing is somebody who looks deeply at the present moment. Larry's movies not necessarily subtle. They're thoughtful. They're reflections of the world around him and the problems in that world. All the movies I do take something which is considered benevolent and turning it into some kind of monstrosity. What? what? 
director, every time I make a movie, they always tell me that's not the way it's done, but I do it and it works. He is the true independent filmmaker. He is jump out of the chopper, run and gun. Larry is the best gorilla filmmaker in the business. A wild maverick sense in the tradition of the handmade picture. He trusts his actors and they trust him. The greatest dead devil Hollywood has ever seen. The reality of life is you don't know all the answers. You don't know why these things occur. Let's face it, anybody will put up with anything if they think a movie is being shot. Please welcome to the stage the director, Steve Mitchell, and the composer, Joe Kramer, the creators of King Cohen. For those who didn't... I mean, I, I never met Larry Cohen, but my impression from the portrait of him in the film is that he was every bit as gregarious and good fun in real life as his oh, movies yeah. were. Yeah, Larry... I don't think we... Well, we did talk about this in the movie, actually. Larry wanted to be a stand-up comedian initially, and he didn't like the hours of working as a stand-up, so he said, I've got to find another career for myself. So we start, you know, he started pestering people at NBC when he was a page back yeah. in the late 50s, and he wanted to be a writer. But the spirit of the performer is in Larry. You can tell it you know, in, in the trailer, and we certainly get a sense of that in the movie. You know, Larry, I wish Larry was here. He would enjoy this. He would like being in front of these lights. <laughs> you know, when we did a, a number of festivals with him and at events, and every time Larry got in front of the lights and an audience, he got about 10 years younger, and he just took control of the room, and he was, he was I miss him already. I remember going to see um, It's Alive when it first came out in the UK, and I saw it by mistake. It was in, it was in, there was two different, it was like one of those multiplex cinemas, and I wasn't old enough to go and see it. And I had paid to see the film in the next room, and I went in at the beginning, you know, because the way it starts, it's like, oh, you're going to have a baby, yeah, great, you know, go oh, just go into the livery room, and then, ah! Right. <laughs> and it was the best possible introduction to Larry Kahn for me. And then, I, I, you know, through reading, um, you know, things like uh, Psychotronic and, and finding out about his career and realising that it goes so far back. There's so much stuff that I had already seen of his that I just didn't know was Larry Cohen. I mean, it's, it's, it's a 360-degree career, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and he had a career that was completely on his own terms. This project got started... One day I was looking at the IMDb, and I was a fan of his work. I knew his TV stuff. I knew his features. It's Live was the first movie I saw theatrically. And I'm looking at his IMDb credits, and I'm going, wow, I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know that. And it, this guy was incredibly prolific. And this is only the stuff that was produced. He has, well, he ha well still has, a lot of scripts that were never produced. We heard some stories about them. We said, boy, that sounded really good. But not everything gets made. But he was incredibly prolific, and my nickname for him was the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going and going and going. He wrote every day. He, he always had two or three scripts in process. I mean, he was a creative machine. Joe Dante refers to him as, a, you know, as, as an idea machine. Yeah. And I don't know that there's any, ever been anybody like him for, in terms of the volume and the work, but also his energy and his obsessiveness for, for getting things done. I want to show a clip uh, from, from the film. Um, this is, because a lot of the film is about conflicting narratives about he said, she said, something oh, yeah. like this. And this is, uh, this is, I think, one, you know, a really, really well done sequence. This is two different versions of what may or may not have happened <laughs> in the particular arrangement of a stunt. It kind of speaks for itself. I don't need to set it up. It, it, it explains itself. Enjoy this. It does. Jesus Christ, man, they got guns! 
Every time there would be a stunt that had to be done, I would have to do it first. Say, okay, Fred, you're in this cab, and then get to the corner, open the door and throw yourself out onto the sidewalk. Throw myself out on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it's, you'll be fine. Okay, Cohen, you do it first. And I go in the cab, I'd throw myself out of the cab on the sidewalk. Okay, well, that was it. No problem. Well, he didn't fall out of no cab, I promise you that. Larry did not fall out of a cab. Then I go around the corner where he couldn't see me and go, ah, Christ, this is terrible. Larry Cohen is no athlete. No matter how he jumps out of a cab, it's gonna be wrong. So it don't really matter. He's gonna hurt himself no matter what he does. Stepping out of the cab, he might hurt himself. So, okay, let's do it, Fred. And then he go around the corner. He throw himself out onto the sidewalk. He get up. You're right, nothing to it. Then he go around the corner where I couldn't see him. And he, ah, gee, that Cohen, I hate that bastard. That's a Larry myth. That's a Larry myth. But that's the whole picture we, we just one-upping each other all the time. I'd say, I'll do any stunt that you want first. Larry Cohen did not fall out of a cab, and if he told you that he fell out of the cab first, he's a lie. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that is just a taste of what you get from, uh, from King Cohen. The whole film is like that, and uh, I said it was, a, it was the favourite thing that I saw it for. I mean, I told you that at the time when yes. I saw how much yeah. I enjoyed it. I, I really, really loved it. Um, Joe, you are an extremely well-respected composer. I mean, you know, scores for... Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and uh, Jack Reacher. And what are you, what are you working on at the moment? What are you doing here now? You're here working, right? Uh, yeah, working. Um, I am finishing up a score via the internet for Lucky McKee for his new film Kindred Spirits. Wow. So uh, we're right in the finishing stretch for that before we start mixing the movie. And I have a relationship with a wonderful company here in England that does production music. So we make the music in advance, and then companies and productions that don't hire a composer per se, they get music that they need from this collection of music that we record. And it's really top-notch, because I can do a 90-piece orchestra at Abbey Road, so you know, or air, or wherever. So yeah, yeah. I got to do like the big session on Friday, and you know, then I couldn't lift my arm for three days from conducting. How did you get into film compositions? We've had quite a few composers on the show, uh, and the, uh, people come in through very, very different. Did you always know that you wanted to compose for film? No, I wanted to be Paul McCartney, but he, uh, <laughs> he already has a Paul McCartney in his band, so uh, I decided to try to be John Williams instead. Uh, you know, the first two records I bought were Magical Mystery Tour and the score to Superman the movie. So... I chucked out the Beatles and chased movies. I was lucky, too, because I grew up in upstate New York in a, in a very small town. And so as a seventh grader, which would be, you know, I was about 13, I was friends with 18-year-olds who were making films on Super 8. Right. And so they would cast me in these movies because I was a hot-headed little kid. And, you know, they'd need, like, an energetic kid to make their Amblin movie, you know, yeah. their 80s film. And yeah. I, my dad was an amateur musician, so I had a recording studio in my house. And I was like, what do you do for your music in your movies? And Scott Storm, the director, was like, well, you know, just take my Tangerine Dream records and needle drop them in. It's like, well, aren't you going to get sued? He's like, well, no one's going to see these movies anyway. And I was like, yeah, but I could do original music for you. So I was, like, 15 and, you know, scoring movies. And... 
I just sort of fell into it that way. And it was all instinctive. And then I went to Berkeley in Boston. And I discovered there was a whole craft behind it of conducting and, and mathematically counting frames and minutes and seconds. And when I realized you could have a, a, a sort of control over the whole thing, I became obsessed with it. And it's, it appeals to my mathematical mind and the sort of putting everything in its place. And yet there's also this mysterious artistic quality to it where you're trying to sort of take an oboe and make it, you know, use it to make you feel sad or excited or tense, you know. Do you still enjoy it or is it, is it work? No, I love it, actually. I love it so much I tend to do it even when I'm not getting paid for it. So, <laughs> you know, um, John Powell's a composer. He has a great quote, which is, nobody ever pays me to write music. They pay me a lot to rewrite music, but they never pay me to write it. And that's sort of, you know, the rewriting can get, you know, like anything. Yeah. You can drill something to death and yeah. you can get frustrated. But, no, I love it. It's, I mean, it's my favorite job I've ever had. And what's your favorite film score? As a fan? Yeah. Well, it's... I, it's to, to, to disappoint you all, it's Star Wars, you know, but I was the right age when it came out, <laughs> you know. Uh, Superman the movie, which uh, has just been reissued on CD in a brand new remaster, is fantastic. Chinatown, Taking a Pelham 123, David oh, yeah. Shire, which is a All great, the President's Men, you know. But Taking a Pelham 123 is often overlooked, and that is an absolutely brilliant yeah. score. And absolutely it's, brilliant score. And it's so intellectually smart the way he did it. It's a whole thing we could do next year. Uh, yeah, episode yeah, 44 yeah, we'll yeah. just talk about that <laughs> I just you know I just wish there was like an intelligent film music radio show on a digital stage yeah because play some of these I've been looking for one to host work. me forever <laughs> <laughs> obviously there is a sense of sadness because you know because Larry is gone but I was just I watched the doc again and it just feels like such a celebration it, it's such an upbeat piece of work um, do you feel like it's captured his spirit because I think like you know he's gone but he's still here yeah well this sequence that you watched before, that was one of the first things my editor and I cut. And it was kind of a tone setter for us. Yeah. And what was nice, you know, a lot of fiction movies, they'll set something up in the first act and pay it off in the third act. And we had a couple of opportunities for what we call He Said, He Said. Yeah. And we had that with Moriarty, Michael Moriarty at one point, and then we have another one with Fred later. So it felt very organic. But, you know, Larry was always a very upbeat guy. He could be cranky. He was a social critic, and I think that's the thread in all of his films. Yeah. But his energy and who he was kind of steered me to make it the way that I made it. I mean, Larry's had tragedy in his life, yeah. and I talked to him about it. I talked to his wife about it, but I did not want to go there. I wanted to focus on the career and the fact that this guy did as much as he did. And of course, he gave me a hard time. He said, you should have made it a miniseries. You didn't talk about my theater work. Larry, I'm in London. He did theater here. He's very proud of it. But, you know, the thing that I tried to tell Larry was, Larry, I made it a certain way at a certain length so people would be more interested in you. That yeah. they, they, they Give them enough so they want to hunt down the films. Yeah. And the other thing that was nice, and we, I found this out uh, when we had screenings and some friends would be there with their wives who did not know who Larry was, they would come up to me and say, he's great, he's funny, he's interesting, I never heard of him, I don't know the movies, but I really liked him. Yeah. And so... In a sense, I think it's a pretty fair celebration of who he was, yeah. and there will never be another Larry Cohen as well, just in terms of who he was and what he did and the amount of what he did. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. 
A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to stay with a, a, a musical theme. You know, we've had beats and we've had Joe talking about composition. Uh, did any of you go and see Eighth Grade over the weekend? Yeah, and did you love it to pieces? It's just like, it's the best thing ever. And uh, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much to love about it. It's this fantastic, the first feature by Bo Burnham, who uh, I know about Bo Burnham because I have a teenage son. And uh, this teenage son kept saying to me, you have to watch these videos by this guy. And I was just thinking, yeah, of course I don't want to do that because that's a teenager telling me to do it. But I did, and they were brilliant. And then Jack Howard is here today, and Jack is a huge fan as well and uh, because Jack is half my age and is my kind of, my other son. Uh, anyway, the film opened, I don't know why I went off on that. The film opened over the weekend, and I, it was, I reviewed it on the, the radio show, and I talked about the, the score, which is by Anna Meredith, which is such an important part of the film. And I just loved the score. And I've been playing it on the Scala radio show every Saturday, one till three. Um, and then again, repeated uh, Monday, seven till nine. Uh, and we got in touch with uh, Anna Meredith, who, whose score it is, and said, is there any chance you'd come to the show? She said, yes, please welcome to the stage, Anna Meredith. I'm so thrilled that you're here. Um, I just loved eighth grade to pieces. How did you get involved in it? Um, well, it's my first score. Um, and I think Bo, you know, who's obviously a really musical guy as well, had, I think he'd done some temp music for yeah. the score, but he always knew that he wasn't going to score it. And he had... So he, so he had never planned to do it himself, because obviously he's a very accomplished keyboard player and he started doing, you know, musical comedy and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that idea, I mean... When I actually eventually heard his temp score, I was thinking, oh, shit, it's quite good. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, yeah, he, he knew he didn't want to do it. And he had um, quite a specific idea of the kind of thing he wanted. He wanted a classically trained composer who maybe was doing their first film, but who worked now in electronics, and he kept talking about this kind of warmth. So, you know, initially feeling quite complimented. By the end, it kind of felt like, all right, well, that leaves me. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think, he, and I think he listens to a lot of music. So he'd heard a few things and got in touch. And it's the, the story. It's it's a really sort of brilliantly specific evocation of a period of life. She's thirteen. She's at the end of the eighth grade, and she's grown up in what Bo Burnham described as a, a culture which they did not create, but they have had forced upon them, in which this generation, Generation Z, as it's referred to sometimes, um, are forced to sort of live their life online. But there is this tension all the way through the film that in real life she has real difficulty speaking to her peers, but she has this kind of online life. 
but nobody's watching her videos other than herself. So it's, and I, I think the genius of the film is that it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, male, female, old, you know, whatever. It just feels terribly universal. And when I got in touch with you to ask you to do the show, you said the other thing is it's about kindness. I was a bit drunk, but yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit much. But yeah, I, I feel it is about, you know, I have yet to, you know, I've seen this film a lot and everybody comes out and goes, oh, God, that was me. Oh, that was totally me. And myself included. And it does, you know, she is so trying so hard and through, you know, she's warm and she wants to communicate through honesty and, and warmth. And, yeah, so I do think on some level it is about kindness. And also, despite the fact that the film depicts some very, very sort of difficult social interactions. There are characters in it that are kind of the, you know, talismans of that kindness. There's a lovely scene at the end when, when she goes, she goes with the chicken nugget scene, as it's been described, which is right. one of the most uplifting things I think I've ever seen. There's another character, an older character, who sort of has a suggestion of what her life might become. So amidst all the hardship, and the thing that your score does is it's got, it's got heart and soul, but it also, it's very good at capturing her anxiety, at capturing the sort of the... Sw- how, do you, how do you do it? I think what Hobo described it as he said, I'd like, take her really seriously and lean into her, her concerns and her euphoria and her, you know, so the things that when you're 13 about the, the palm-sweating horror of talking to the cool kids or of trying to work out what to wear to see the cool older guy and the girl in the mall that you're going to hang out with, you know, those are real problems to her. And so he said, you know, I don't want like a cutesy ukulele, um, you know, score that, that steps back and looks as this as a bigger cultural thing. I want you to be with her in that moment, feeling that, that anxiety and, you know, and the, the film does have moments that I think that are such relief you feel when, yeah. when things go well for her and, and such, you know, the, the horror of going to the high school with the cooler older kids, you know, just those things which we have all experienced and are so relatable and I think he just said, you know, write, write strong music that, you know, when you see the film, it's, music's loud and it's given a lot of space and, you know, he refers to it quite often as another character in the yeah. film. And, you know, it gives, I, I, I think if I was flattering myself, I'd say it, it, he was trying to give her weight I want to show a, a clip from the film, which is the, it's the, the, the pool party clip. And what's happened, for those of you who haven't seen it, is that essentially she has been invited to a, a, a pool party of a kind of cool kid, but she's only been invited because the mother of the cool kid said, oh, yeah, you're the daughter of so-and-so, oh, you must come to the party. And the cool kid was like, I really mustn't come to the party. <laughs> And her father has said to her, yeah, you must. You must go out and put yourself out there. That's the phrase he keeps using. But if you just put yourself out there, not having any real sense of what a terrifying prospect that is. And in this scene, we see her, it starts with her having a panic attack. And then it goes into her, you know, walking into this kind of wildlife environment also, almost. And your music is doing such a lot of the work. Can you, can you say something about the music before we watch it? You know the scene I'm referring yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was actually an existing track that he used for that one um, of, that I'd done before. But he, it, I was, it's one of my favourite usages of this track because I feel it's like Hieronymus Bosch. Like you're just seeing like the seventh <laughs> circles of hell. Like just seeing through her eyes the absolute horror of this ill-fitting swimsuit and like gazing out upon these scenes. So yeah, it's just something very dramatic and yeah, just like opening a door to hell.
how do you write? Do you write when you're... Oh, yeah, actually, move your oh, chair yeah, slightly. Sorry. The, the, it's because I shout. And, do you write at a, at a keyboard or do you write when you're walking around? How, do you, how does it come to you? Um, I do uh, a lot of drawing first, where I draw for any music I write, whether it's an orchestral piece or a remix or a piece of my band or increasingly now f- film stuff, I like to draw the shapes, sort of um, the, the pacing of the material and the kind of dramatic energy of it. So I draw t- a, a line that's a timeline and then I'll be, be drawing these kind of graphic shapes that for me map out the sort of linear contours of the music. And it, I, for me, with the music I write, pacing is the most important thing. So I'm placing where certain objects are going to go. You know, what are you building up to? What are you contrasting with? So I have these sketches, um, which are my kind of maps, and I'll always refer back to them. And then from there, I um, will go to classical notation software and write, even though that score is all electronic. It's all written initially on Sibelius, which is a sort of designed for notation score because that's kind of what my training is. My training is in notation rather than production. So I want to make sure the actual nuts and bolts, the crotchets and quavers work rather than I know that my skill set isn't amazing effects or production. It's about getting good crotchets. And, <laughs> and those, those drawings, those ma- do, you, do you keep them all? Do you have like all the, the, the drawings of what a track looks like? Yeah, I mean, some of them are not as sexy as you'd imagine, but they're, they're, there's, you know, the, I've got some of them somewhere. I mean, they're, I do these some on a whiteboard, but then after a while I thought, oh my God, these are going to be worth billions. <laughs> so, so I've started keeping them. Yeah, and so for each piece I have a, a, a sketch where I like... No, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking that that's a, that's a curated exhibition waiting to yeah, happen, surely, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel that you could look... Like, so just now I'm writing a band album, um, and that's 11 tracks, all quite different. You know, some have beats, some don't, some have vocals, some don't. So each, but each one has a very clear graphic shape for me. Yeah. And I like to be able to see those shapes and then work out how they fit next to each other. And it's a nice... It's like, I mean, it's just storytelling. It's how, when we've all got a, a, you know, a punchline or an amazing crazy thing that happens in the story about when you went to the pub or whatever, that you, when you're telling people, you, you, you know, you time it right. So it's just about contextualising musical objects rather than hilarious anecdotes. You make it sound a lot simpler than I'm sure it is. I mean, you know, I mean, I've tried to write songs and things like that and I, there's, I, I think in my whole life I've written about 25 songs. They're all the same song. I just write the same <laughs> shorter or sort of longer version of it. But there is, I mean, listening to 8th grade, I do, it, it reminds I mean, I was, when I was watching it, I was thinking of... I remember the first time I, I saw Midnight Express and the George M. Roder score, and I was remembering the first time I saw Sorcerer with Tangerine Dream, and I had that same feeling about it's organically in the body of the, the film, and I just can't imagine how you would have sat down and written any of it, to be honest. And that's part of the reason it works for me, is that it's kind of... It's mysterious. Well, he also that he gave me the space to be strong with it. You know, there wasn't much kind of, can you tone it down a bit? And um, you know, actually, you know, he a lot. He he lets music sit, and so I, I, and, and he was saying a lot of the time, if you have ideas about, he recut some stuff after after we'd after I'd written it to yeah. fit around because I kept sort of prudishly saying, actually, it'd be much better if we had two more beats here because the cycle doesn't quite. Mm. <laughs> um, and you know, so he, he he was very accommodating and supportive of what I was trying to do, and I don't know, it felt very instinctive. You know, I w- drew my little shapes and. Um, for what we were trying to do, but um, she's so, you, you know, you feel so protective of her uh, watching this film, and I felt really honoured to be given a place to kind of make her world a bit more hellish or a bit more exciting or 
nice or whatever. Do you do you see yourself? Because you said you know increasingly film, I and mean, obviously your music. We heard it in favorite, and it's you know you. Is that what what the future is for you? Film music. I don't. I mean, I'm really lucky. I have a really eclectic career, so I still make most of my living from classical composition, writing commissions for orchestras and stuff. But and then I perform with my band, but. I think the third balancing side of that is, and it's looking like there's going to be a lot more film and telly stuff coming up, which is really exciting for me. What are you doing now? Uh, I'm finishing up the album, which is a very rare night out for me, big deal. Um, get, have a beer. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, and then I'm going to be doing music for a telly thing after this, I hope. Okay. Did you punch the air when Barack Obama put um, uh, eighth grade in his top movies of 2018? I did a girly squeal. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to imagine what Trump's movies would be. And, <laughs> you know, like Armageddon re-release or something. I don't know, it's just... I mean, that, but that must be such a, such a brilliantly vindicating moment when you think, OK, fine, there's being liked by film critics. But Barack Obama, that's pretty high up the tree yeah. of getting, getting praise. When you're thinking, Barack Obama's heard my music. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's... Um, maybe, you know, I'm sure he doesn't care either way, but, yeah, that, that made my Christmas. And uh, in terms of uh, other film composers that you listen to and you like, who, who do you see as interesting? Mm, I, I mean, a, other than Joe Kramer, obviously. I mean, <laughs> obviously. Um, I have a, t- a terrible thing that I don't listen to any music um, because I find that when I'm trying to write, which is most of the time, that I find it really distracting and unhelpful in terms of trying to psych myself up to be feeling compositionally strong, that if I hear someone else's thing, I'm like, oh shit, that's really good, and, you know, what am I going to do now? So <laughs> I set my, I'm more in a kind of podcast, um, long uh, audiobooks situation for the music I listen to, because I don't want to see what other people do, I just want to try and do it on my own terms. So of course I see films and, you know, what Mika Levy does, and, and you know, Johnny Greenwood stuff, and, you know, there's lots of people doing interesting stuff, but I don't seek out other people's music, which sounds awful, I'm quite ashamed. But no, no, I'm just very pleased that you, you listen to podcasts and audiobooks, because I have skin in both those games. Um, <laughs> You know, if you, if you ever find that what you want to do is spend uh, eight hours listening to a film critic telling you about his life in rock and roll bands and not make a, this a fantastic audio book of how does it feel, which I think which it would... Because there's no music in it at all, so you wouldn't find it distracting. It would just be great. Anyway, listen, I'm so glad you came to show. I love the film. I think your score is a is central part of it, and I, I do think every now and then that, f- that f- film critics don't focus enough on the, the music in movies. But th- right. there is no way you could watch 8th grade without coming out of it and going, the music is such a central part. You've done a brilliant job on it, and I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for coming Thank on the so show. Much. Thank you Thank you. You're listening to the Kermode on Film podcast. And if you're enjoying it, please remember to subscribe. This week's edition comes live from the BFI South Bank, where every month I do my MK3D show. If you like the sound of it, then go to the BFI website to get tickets. The shows are every month, but do be warned, they do sell out rather quickly. Next up, Benedict Erlingson made his name with the international hit of Horses and Men. His new film, Woman at War, is a tale of a divided soul. In one life, she's a singing teacher. In another, she's an eco-warrior. I love the movie, and I found out more about it when Benedict Erlingson joined me live on stage at MK3D. So you've come here hot foot from a... You were doing a screening at Picture House just before, yes? Yes. And 
It's ongoing. I have a Q&A after this Q&A. So you've just sort of you've just you've fitted yeah, us in, and you're very busy. I will uh, repeat my answers. They're well re well rehearsed. So. Well, let me see if I can ask you a question that you haven't yes. haven't been asked before. Uh, um, which was your favourite Osmond brother? Yeah. What is Osmond brother? Uh, what is that? Um, just tell us, tell us a little bit about the story. I mean, it's a story of somebody who is, you know, involved in uh, sort of eco-warrior uh, stuff, but yeah. it's, it's a story about her, but it's a story about her as well. Tell, tell us what the film is about, Benedict. No. Okay. No, sorry. Of course, uh, I will do it. Uh, but uh, it's very hard. Uh, this is a film... Uh, and uh, I hope it's a family film. It's a feel-good film about um, immediate threat yeah. that is approaching. Uh, of course, it, I, I started to think about you know saving the world. You know, I have got a messiah complex, <laughs> uh, and then I thought about films that are about saving the world. And these films are usually action films. Yeah with a hero that, you know, gets away with uh, both the money and the girl or gets what he wants and he, what he needs and so on. And these films are in really a fairy tales. So I, I thought about, you know, fairy tale. A fairy tale about this very complex and very serious matter. A film that could maybe give us hope. So, um, I, you know, they, they call it, what do they call it? Environmental action arthouse thriller with a lot of music. That's... Something. That's that's a really catchy uh, tagline. <laughs> One of the things that I that I, I, I love most about the film is the yeah. way in which you've you've put the music, the live music, into the landscape. So, as uh, our heroine is walking around through different situations, sometimes in her room, sometimes out, you start hearing incidental music, and then you suddenly realise that you're going past somebody playing the piano, somebody playing the drum kit, and somebody playing whatever that thing's called. Mm. Euphonia. Is it euphonia? Yeah, sousaphone. Sousaphone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's like a kind of Greek chorus theatrical yeah. uh, thing. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, it's a very easy agreement to make with publicum, and we are doing it all this time in, in theatre. And we do it in the opera, when there is band between you and the, the players. Yeah. And, uh, but in, in this case, I'm also, of course, visualising the inner struggle of the character. At the same time, this is a device to smile to the audience, to remind us that this is a fairy tale. This is a little bit like Bertolt Brecht, Verfremdung, to distance us. Alienation. Yeah, alienation, yeah. To, to, you know. So it's, um, yeah, I think film can be very, I think filmmakers should be very more, more inspired by German theatre. I think there's a, a lot to get from them. Because I mean, I w initially I was kind of reminded of the you know the joke in Blazing Saddles when they're driving across the desert and they turn up and there is the whole band playing the theme in the desert. Yeah. And I I thought originally that was you know was a but actually what's what's lovely about it is it's not comedic. It's actually yeah. really soulful and is part of the drama. And there's a, a sequence when she's like in in a small office. Yeah. And the the drummer is sitting behind her, and you get a sense that things are going to go badly because the drummer looks like he's about to start yeah. playing something. Yeah, it's the, the principle of the choir. The choir is not only talking to the audience. The choir, Greek choir, also talk to the protect, protectionist, yeah. warns him, you know, try to influence him. So in that sense, it's they are breaking the, if there is a rule. So uh, in this film, you you a little bit have a deconstruction construction. You start with a film. Oh, it's a film about with musicians live playing the music. Okay, 
Yeah, now what they see her, they see sees them. Yeah. Okay, it's a film. She sees them, and then they start to influence her, turning on the TV and so on. So you you are making new agreement, um, <clears throat> and I like that as a storyteller and also as an audience when there's a new agreement made to me during the process of the story. You have such a fantastic <clears throat> central character. Tell me about uh, the actress that plays your central character, because you've known her for... <coughs> <coughs> yes, we are uh, childhood friends. We were, we were slaves together in a child, child fabric called theater. Uh, as, as 10 years old, we, we played, uh, you know, we were in children play in Iceland. It was a children play. Uh, about domestic violence. <laughs> How Scandinavia can get? <laughs> <you know? coughs> and, the, and the concept was, uh, of course, that uh, children played adults and adults played children. Okay. So we were playing adults in, in this play about domestic violence. Uh, so that was, you know, really, uh, you know, and then we worked together and we were in college together in university. Yeah, everybody, of course, is if they are not related, they are lovers or, or ex-lovers. <laughs> uh, but we are not lovers. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. One of you know, my few relationships that, okay. you know. No, but uh, <laughs> strike this, sorry, strike this. <laughs> uh, no, but uh, we have really long, we have, we have, no, no. We, have a, we, are, we come from a small community and we have been uh, like, like a professional siblings. And, and, and Haltora is, a, you know, our Sarah Bernhardt. She is a fantastic actress. And she, can, she acts usually men also. So she has done Don Quixote and even played in, in Wait for Goto, Vladimir, and so on. Mm. It, it, I've never been to Iceland. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a joke in the film that, you know, we're probably cousins and yeah, you know, yeah. That. yeah. Um, is there a is there a specific Icelandic cultural outlook? I mean, what what is the? Do you see yourself as being part of a of a particular tradition? You have a particular form of comedy or anything, or is it just? No, you know, the, the, I saw an English uh, documentary about where is the Viking culture. Yeah. You know, it was wow, the Vikings were here in Europe. Where is the culture? What is left of this culture? And uh, apparently nothing is left. You know, it means that the Viking culture is, in essence, you know, the, the ability to adapt. Yeah. To use the best instruments, the French swords, you know, your own, your own ships, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever works. It's a scientific, very modern, technological approach. <laughs> it's modernity, yeah. you know, it's the modern uh, humans, you know. So uh, we are very, you know, uh, Viking in that sense. But of course, yes, uh, there is, of course, like in all cultures, you know, something, a uh, niche. But, you know, this film is uh, local, global, global, local, you know. Can, can you tell me an Icelandic joke? No, seriously, is there, can you tell me an Icelandic joke? You should have prepared me, because uh, we say, you know, we, we sometimes um, credit us with uh, something that you think you're very good in, the British. But oh, I thought you meant me personally. Sorry, no, no, but, uh, but we credit uh, for us, it goes to... Snorri Sturluson, you know, it, it is the, in our sagas, it is the art of understatement. Okay. You know, that is really, you know, for us, top humor. <laughs> <laughs>
So that's, you know. So the more understated, the more hilarious. Fantastic. And have you um have you seen the film play with with, with audience? I mean, I, I, I think it's I think it's a really terrific piece of work. I liked of Horses and Men as yeah. well, but actually I have to say I preferred this. This this yeah. touched me more. Yeah. I thought there was stuff in it that was really moving, stuff in it that was very, very funny, yeah. but I found it, 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 it really touched me. Have you seen it playing with audiences and how do, they, how do audiences respond to it? Do they yes, it? I've seen it play with audiences in Ukraine and France and, uh, and uh, elsewhere, and I've been very you know, surprised. Uh, even you know, people are laughing to something that I thought was maybe an Icelandic joke, yeah. but yeah. it's <laughs> apparently universal. Uh, <laughs> uh, and that is the paradox. We are, of course... Um, so it, it, it was really I- incredible, and even clapping in the middle of the film, uh, you know, uh, on the time of change. So for me, it was really warmth uh, experience, especially in Ukraine, yeah, you know. Yeah. They were really, you know, with it, with, with it there. And it's Ukrainian singers, the, the singers yes. that we see, yes. Um, and are they singing, they are singing live whilst you're whilst Yeah, you're yeah, uh, everything was taken up live on set as much as possible, and then we took before and after and so on. So we were really, I can have a long lecture about my preparation in the musical department. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I was just... I but was the poetry is mine, mostly. It's very funny. I studied uh, Ukrainian uh, folk songs, and I wrote my own... Folk songs, you know. <laughs> so it's my first debut as a poet, you know, <laughs> Ukrainian uh, poem. So, so it ma- makes some sense. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, I, th- I think the movie's terrific. It opens on Friday. Thank you so much for fitting us into your fantastically busy show. You're, what are you off to now? So you've just done the premiere in London. You've done the thing now, and you're going I'm on now? Too? Now I'll come home and, 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 and write something new. Do you know what you're going to do next? Do you know what y- Yes, be? but it's a secret. Can you, can you give me just like an understated, you know, hilar- hilariously Icelandic hint of what yeah. it might be? Human problem. <laughs> Benedict Erlingson talking about Woman at War, which is currently playing in UK cinemas. Now, a couple of months ago, Stephen Merchant came on the MK3D live show to talk about his new film, Fighting With My Family, a tale of a wrestling family based on a true life story. And back then, we didn't have time to put that interview on the Kermode on Film podcast, but I really liked the movie and he was a great guest. So, better late than never, here's Stephen Merchant talking about Fighting With My Family. I've never fist bumped a guest before. Well, you said you were, you were a little under the weather, so I thought that was safe. Oh, I see. Thank yeah. you. That's for what you were doing. Uh, okay, for fine. For my yeah. health, yeah. You know, I've, for, I've forgotten my illness already. Yes. No, I haven't. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, I, I saw the film uh, this morning. I think it's really, really good fun. I really enjoyed it. it was, I mean, it was, you know, it's a very entertaining story. How close to the truth is the story? Uh, it's 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 perhaps closer than you would imagine. Um, I've compressed time a little bit. The real story probably stretched over about three and a half years. Uh, there was a lot of sort of um, her working her way through the kind of training part of WWE, which you know would have made the film very long, and lots of sort of montages and lots of six months later, three weeks later, which I'm not a fan of, and her kind of walking through the snow and then through the spring, you know, to try and convey that amount of time. But um, so there was a compression of time, but all the kind of uh, the sort of significant narrative beats of the film are, are true, including the uh, interactions with The Rock, which you might think we're kind of done for, 
for sort of stunt casting, but that, that stuff happened as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's surprisingly close. What was it like meeting The Rock? Because obviously he's, he's involved in the production side as well. So was it, is he, you know, I mean, I've always thought he looks lovely. Well, th- I don't know if you remember, Mark, I'm sure if we were to ask you your top uh, ten films, you would probably include 2010's Tooth Fairy. Um, starring myself and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you're welcome. Yep. And um, so I've known him since then. I knew him back in the day when, when, when he was still in shape. And, um, <laughs> I, uh, and, and I hit it off with him. We, we, he and I got on well um, it, it, doing that film. And so he was as lovely then. I wish I could report that he's a monster in real life, but, but he's, he's a really wonderful man and sickeningly charismatic and talented, and it makes me angry. <laughs> and what are the uh, the the world rest? What are they, what WWE stands for? World wrestling, the American the world version. wrestling, world wrestling entertainment. Okay, fine. So there's a very specific line about you know it's 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 all fake. It's not faked. It's fixed. That's and right. the thing is, you know, if it was so, then why would it, so exp- what are they like to deal with? And are they are they at all uh, cagey about the fake fixed thing? Well, my first uh, intro. I didn't know anything about wrestling before I. Started this film. You're not I, I, I did not know. I'm not a wrestler myself, despite the physique. I have, I have a very similar workout regime to The Rock, yes. obviously. But um, I went into writing rather than <laughs> wrestling. Um, but uh, so I didn't know anything about it. So I spent time with the family initially, and then um, I went over to uh, WWE in America. I actually went to WrestleMania with The Rock, which was extraordinary. The man came out and set fire to an eight-foot sign of his name with a flamethrower, and he milked that for ten minutes. It was extraordinary. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> So, the, but the, we, we had to involve WWE. We actually began life with Film 4, but we had to involve WWE because they own certain parts of the story and the rights to her sort of persona and so on. Um, and they, uh, they, it's a little bit like I imagine the magic circle. You know, you need to yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. win their trust. You need to convince them that you're not there to sort of mock them. And Which the film doesn't. I mean, the film is very clear that there is physical hurt and pain and gain involved in all of this. Well, you know, there is a version of this film which is a sort of, you know, it is a satire of wrestling. But the thing I discovered was that the family love it so much. It's so important to them in a really meaningful way. And yeah. they talk about it like a religion, like it really saved them from some dark times in their lives. And, uh, and it seemed to me that if your dream is to be a wrestler, and uh, then I start mocking wrestling, then the kind of the whole impetus for why she's trying to, to pursue this falls away. And yeah. it reminded me of... The story reminded me of things like Billy Elliot, where you don't need to like ballet to enjoy the movie. And it seemed to me that if you're kind of snobby or snooty about wrestling, then then the whole kind of raison d'etre of the film falls apart, really. What about the physicality of it? Because we do see Florence Pugh getting thrown to the... I mean, obviously, there must be a certain amount of stunt doubling, but I've read in interviews with her, she said that she did get quite thrown around. Yes, she uh, went off to the same facility in, in Florida that, that the real girl trained at and she spent two weeks there with a guy who plays her brother, uh, Jack Loudon, and they uh, they learned to wrestle as best you can in a couple of weeks and they did as much of it as we would allow them to and that they could do and there was some doubling for the sort of backflips and some of the bigger moves but she does an extraordinary amount of it including she actually on her fourth day of filming walked out in front of 20,000 fans at the Staples Centre in LA, real wrestling fans and to recreate one of Paige's real matches. And um, it took enormous nerve to do that. And I have nothing but admiration. I was a bag of nerves. And she wouldn't let me anywhere near her because I was making her nervous. <laughs> and she was just, she just came out there and, and just was just ice cool and just did, did these incredible moves. And she said at one point she was lying on the floor and she saw an eight-year-old boy just screaming, you suck! <laughs> and uh, We've and, all had that. Yeah, we've all had that. Yeah. <laughs> 
We have a clip that I, I want to show. There's a certain repetition with the trailer because the trailer is so well cut that there are bits of all this already. That's yes, every single scene. But there's, it, but I think, it, yeah, exactly. But I think it, actually it is nice to see this at its full length. This is when our, our two uh, young heroes get to America and, and they bump into the rock for the first time. So here we go. How about what the rock wants? The rock wants you to go out there, take no prisoners, have no regrets, have no fear, lay it all out on the line. Because if you don't do that, the rock is going to find your friend Mary Poppins. He's going to take her umbrella. Yeah, he's going to shine it. Up real nice. He's gonna turn that something sideways and stick it straight up your candy asses. There's your advice. Straight out of the jabroni beating, pie eating, trail blazing, eyebrow raising, entertaining the globe, never hotter, talking to two rejects from Harry Potter. So that's how you went over the crowd. There's a, there's a moment in that when he says the, he says the thing about you know you look like you're straight out of Oliver Twist, can I? Which always reminds me of the um, of the Bill Hicks thing about about British hooligans. We're the hooligans. <laughs> you know, penny loafers and no socks. Um, what was the what was the most difficult thing about directing? I mean, obviously there's all the sort of wrestling stuff, but what's the most difficult thing about directing the film? Um, everything. Everything. Uh, we had a very compressed prep time. So we had five weeks to prepare the film, and we were shooting on two sides of the Atlantic. Made a lot of wrestling, and so. It was very uh, frantic, you know, there was a lot of sort of, um, I've heard directing described as being, it's at the best of times, like you're being chased down a hill by a boulder and you're just <laughs> trying not to get crushed. Perhaps that's where Spielberg got the opening of Indiana Jones from. Um, and that's sort of certainly how it felt, because it, it, we, so that was very tough and, and, and the wrestling sequences are very hard because we wanted them to feel authentic, but we didn't have, um, you know, the luxury of days and days to shoot them. And so... They and do also, look authentic. I do. Well, I did great. genuinely believe I was watching people beating each other up. Yes, well, I appreciate that. And also, um, you're obviously anxious all the time about the, the performers getting uh, injured, yeah. uh, which is very, very tough. The, the, the sequence I was mentioning earlier in which Florence goes out in front of those 20,000 fans, we had the WWE gave us one hour at this, uh, after a real event had happened. And... Um, and The Rock very sweetly, I call him The Rock, um, he very sweetly came down and emceed the event, but we only had an hour, and I said to him, please don't get carried away. <laughs> and he went out in the ring, and he did 20 minutes on the mic. <laughs> and he was ad-libbing, he was doing the catchphrases, can you smell? And I was outside the ring thinking, yeah, we can smell what you're cooking, mate, get out the ring! Um, it was so his name? He didn't set fire to his oh, okay, name, thankfully. But so, so yes, it was just a very, uh, it was very tough. I have to say, that one of the, the reasons it's lovely to have you on the show is that I've been directed by you. That's right, in extras. Yeah, yes. I was, it was fabulous. And I remember the direction you gave me because it was, I was playing me. Yep. And, uh, and you said, just be you. And yeah. I thought that was, it cut right to the heart of it. So yeah. thanks very much. Thanks. It's very it much was, what I said to The Rock. Yes, and, it was um, great. Just, just, be, just, just be. Now, we also asked you to choose a scene from a film that had sort of been an inspiration to you. And you chose a film that I, that I really love. What did you choose? Well, I actually uh, used to do film criticism years ago when I first started because uh, you were at college with James King James and you King. and James King who of course is mini me young me um, uh, you did a radio show together we did a radio show together and then when I went back to my hometown of Bristol uh, I used to write for this magazine and I used to do film reviewing but I was very young and so the more senior critics would send me off to see films they weren't terribly interested in seeing or hadn't heard of and one of them was this film called Swingers with uh, Vince Vaughn and, and um, John Favreau and it was the first time I'd seen either of those people yeah. and um, it, was, it was the first time I'd seen a film where I felt for the first time 
oh, I think maybe I could do this. Because it was a bunch of friends who got together and they had sort of drawn from their own life. They'd shot it very cheaply and quickly in LA. Um, it felt very raw and from their lived experience. I was a little younger than them, but I f felt a great affinity with it. Yeah. And, I, and I didn't know who any of these guys were and it just blew me away. And um, the fact that you know Vince Vaughn is now in my movie feels like the end of some journey that I've been on. And, uh, and it was just a film that really resonated with me and st struck me. And like I say, it was a big kind of motivator for, for me getting into this side of the camera. There was a period after Swingers came out that everybody would do that thing about you're so money, you're so much. I, there was a phrase I had never heard before. Was that, was, did you heard it before? No, I hadn't. And I don't even know if it was a thing. Was it even it, something? I don't know whether... Well, it was after that. Right, oh, oh, you're yeah. so money. I was yeah. thinking, why? Who said that? It's in Swingers. Um, you chose a, a scene, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly long scene, but we are going to let it run long because the gag plays out over a sort of three minutes. Do you want to say anything about, you said, do we need to set this up? Do you want to well, say anything about it before we show You know, for those that haven't seen it or don't remember, you know, it's about kind of uh, the dating scene in LA in the in the early 90s, mid 90s. And uh, but it's John, not swingers like we think of swinging it. Swingers right. as in they swing as right. opposed to yes, exactly. Which they was, swing. was very confusing. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which may have been the reason they sent me to see the film. Uh, <laughs> not because I'm a fan of swinging, just because they, they thought it was going to be about that. Um, but yes, it's about these kind of these guys um, and their sort of ill fated dating exploits. And uh, John Favreau plays a, a sort of love lorn guy who has just broken up and he's met a girl in a bar and now he's calling her um, although he's been told by his friends he should really wait three days but he's called her as soon as he got home. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Hi, Nikki. This is this is Mike. Could you just uh, call me when you get in? I'm going to be up for a while and I'd just rather speak to you in person instead of trying to fit it all into... Fuck! Uh, Nikki and Mike, this, uh, this, just, this just isn't working out. I, I think you're great, but uh, I, maybe we should just some, take some time off from each other. It's not you, it's me, it's what, it's what I'm going through. All right, uh, it, 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 it's only been six months. Mike? Nikki, great! D did you just uh, walk in or were you, were you listening all along? Don't ever call me again. Wow. I, I guess you're home. <laughs> I know you have to rush to because I know you've got um, premiere stuff to attend to, but it's funny watching that. I, I hadn't thought of it, but it, there is the similarity with The Office in that it's, yeah. it's really painful. Right. I mean, it's funny, but it really hurts. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and I think it, it, that was one of the influences on us. And, and Ricky and I, actually, when we were doing The Office, we would often quote swingers, and we couldn't remember if it was things we and our friends had said or if it was from the movie, you know, because we just really felt, I don't know, it just felt so authentic and so real. And, and what I love about it is that it's excruciating because it, it feels such an authentic, real experience and I think mm -hmm. I love that when comedy has jeopardy and drama you know he just wants to meet a nice girl and and it to go well he's been out of the dating game and the fact that he's trying so hard is is his kind of Achilles heel you know and it's just it's a very very funny appealing scene and the thing that you managed to do with the fight with my family is that you take us into this area that I think most of us would never have gone to a WWE convention but I do feel 
like I'm watching people that I believe in actually in those situations, um, which I think is it, you know, it, it, that's that's a really smart uh, trick to pull off because the the danger is you think when you go over to America you're gonna you're gonna lose it, but you don't at all. And then of course when Vince Vaughn turns up, it's it, it's it's completely the right character for him. So I think you did a, a terrific job. If you had to so just uh, say a quick word to the audience to encourage them to come and see Fighting with My Family, which there is a premiere here at, later on tonight. Well, the match is completely sold out, but how would you sell it to the audience? Well, um, you know, it's a true story, and I think, you know, hopefully um, it, it's, 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 it's very funny, but I think it is very emotional, and that's something that I love in movies, is, is going on that kind of emotional journey. And I think, you know, if you're laughing at the beginning, and if, if you have a slightly kind of, you know, sneery view of wrestling, as I did, I think by the end you'll be won over to this family and to this girl and her journey, and I hope even by the end perhaps shedding a little tear, uh, as I did when I went to see another film that they sent me to see uh, back in those days reviewing, which was The Bridges of Madison County, oh, yeah, which yeah. I remember crying, weeping during that film the one at when, the end. When Clint Eastwood takes a lot of photographs of bridges. That's right, yeah. Please. Oh, no. No, you see, you're exactly the kind of sneering yeah, critic that here's, meant... Here's when, another bridge. When the credits were rolling in that film, I was in tears, and I didn't want the other critics, the hardened guys like you, to see me. So I stayed during all of the credits so they wouldn't see me in the lobby crying. And I was like, yeah, I'll just wait and see who the best boy is. And I was in tears. Anyway... My hope is that you'll, uh, hopefully this will entertain you perhaps more than it did you, Bridges of Madison County. But anyway, yes, it's a very heartwarming story. Actually, it's a Rocky-style underdog story with some laughs and some tears. And it's a, and anyway, there you are. You should luck. definitely put it on the poster. It's funnier and more entertaining than the Bridges of Madison County. And I'd like to say that although I didn't cry once in the Bridges of Bloody Madison County, who knew there were so many bridges in Madison County, I did cry whilst uh, watching Fight with my family. Oh, I did, well, that's yeah, good. Well, I appreciate I that. don't you. have a heart of stone. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Stephen Merchant. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, there we are. That brings us to the end of a packed Kermode on Film podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening. If you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe. And as I said before, if you like the sound of those MK3D live shows and you want tickets, then go to the BFI website. But remember, do it fast because they sell out pretty quickly. But the show happens every month, so there's always the next one. Keep watching the skies. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 